Good morning, New Hope. New Hope Community Church, that's you. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 2. We'll be in Daniel chapter 2 today. Cool story today. Man, this is a cool story. Uh, by the way, next week, um, uh, just, just to give you a little preview, I don't think we're going to get out of uh, preaching next week's text without watching a little bit of Veggie Tales. So you, you, you're gonna, you can look forward to that. Um, but today, <clears throat> uh, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you to Jason Poling, our pastor emeritus, Father Jason Poling, who is here um, promoting St. Mary's Ecumenical Institute. Um, really, uh, my life um, would not be the same. As, as strong as I could say, my life would not be the same without new hope. Um, my life would really also not be the same without St. Mary's. It was um, just a, a, an absolute blessing, an absolute gift from God that this, uh, that this university, that this institute uh, is in Baltimore and within driving distance um, and affordable, very, very affordable uh, education. And really, we're serious when we say, if you've ever considered, like, just I just want to sit in a room and listen to like a New Testament professor like Mike Gorman. Like we can make that work. If you ever just like it, it wouldn't cost you anything just to, just to check it out. We can make that work. If you ever wondered what uh, graduate level theological education is, it's actually something that will enrich your faith. Um, and um, I'm also privileged to serve as the alum council, the, cha- the chair of the alum council this, um, this, uh, for the next two years. Uh, so it's also kind of my job to promote and to, to bring in new, you know, students and all that. But anyway, St. Mary's Ecumenical Institute, please check it out uh, online. You can see the link on our website. Anyway, Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Last week we saw Daniel and his friends being carted off to Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was the latest superpower of the ancient world. They were known for decadence. They were known for extravagance, but they were also skilled artisans. They were intelligent. They were innovative. They constructed huge ziggurats in praise to their god Marduk. They crafted an impressive city of gardens and palaces and temples. The hanging gardens of Babylon were later to be known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Their priests excelled in astronomy and mathematics. They charted the skies with amazing accuracy. In time, they were able to predict solstices and equinoxes, and they were even able to, even able to develop a numerical system based on the number 60 that we still use today to help keep track of time. Still, if you open any Western Civ textbook, like, like this one from, by the way, my third favorite alma mater, my favorite alma mater being St. Mary's Ecumenical Institute, my second being Parkville High School, and uh, my third being the Community College of Baltimore County. Um, uh, the, um, and I don't say that like joking. That really, I, love, I love CCBC. Please go to CCBC. Anyway, if you look, the, 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 the section on Babylonian rule, 612 to, 6, uh, to 539 BC, there it is. But what comes before it? A section on Assyrian rule. And what comes after it? Rule by tolerance, the Persian Empire. So there the Babylonian Empire is sandwiched in between other things. This sermon is entitled, Time Waits for No One, which is the name of a Rolling Stones song from its only rock and roll album. Really, really good album. Um, and, and Time Waits for No One. Uh, here's, here's, here's a bit of the second verse. Men, they build towers to their passing, 
Yes, to their fame everlasting. Here he comes, talking about time. Here he comes, chopping and reaping. Hear him laugh at their cheating. Time waits for no one, and it won't wait for me. See, the Babylonians had conquered Judah, which is why Daniel and his friends were there. They were the best. They were the brightest of what Israel had to offer. And it was King Nebuchadnezzar's plan to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture and religion. And to some extent, the plan worked, right? Last week in chapter 1, we saw Daniel pass his first test um, by not breaking Israel's food laws by eating uh, from the king's table. But, but that doesn't mean that he refused the education that actually he was there to receive. Daniel and his friends were exceptionally bright men. And by God's grace, they excelled above all the others who were brought into the king's court. We're told that Daniel was, was, an, was especially talented at interpreting visions and dreams. And, and that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning. In Daniel chapter 2 which takes place in the year 604 B.C. The king had not been sleeping well. It was only the second year of his reign, but we're told that his spirit was troubled through long, sleepless nights, King Nebuchadnezzar. When he did sleep, he was haunted by visions in his dreams. I mean, have you ever woken up from a dream and you were so struck by it that you had a heck of a time getting back to sleep, and it just keeps going over and over in your head in the middle of the night, that dream, you're trying to go to sleep, but the dream won't leave your brain. And this goes on night after night until the king, the king Nebuchadnezzar, finally calls in the people who were supposed to understand these things. He says, I can't get to sleep. I need to understand these things. I need to understand these dreams. Please come, you wise men, tell me what this means. Remember, the people of Babylon had done some pretty impressive things. The king wanted to see if if, if they would understand these dreams of his. And so he calls in magicians and enchanters and, and sorcerers, and they all stand before him. And you can imagine, like, how they felt being summoned, you know, by the presence, into the presence of the king. They all file into the room, and, and, you know, and they stand silent, and they hear the king you know, finally speak. I had a dream. My spirit is troubled, and I want to know what it means. So the first thing, watch this. The first thing they say is, oh, king, live forever. Because you know, if you're called into the presence of the king, if this ever happens to you, first thing right off the bat, make sure the king knows that you're on his side. Th- then they say, well, tell us the dream, king, and um, we'll, incorp- we'll interpret for you. And the king says this. He says, well, the word for me is firm. This is verse 5. The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, uh, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. We're just having a casual conversation here. Um, but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and, and rewards and, and great honor. So now at this point, the wise men are kind of hoping that they didn't hear the, the king, they, maybe they didn't hear the king correctly. Um, why don't you tell us about the dream and then we'll interpret it for you? And the king says, no, 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 no. You're just stalling. You're just stalling. And if I tell you my dream, you're just going to tell me what I want to hear. If you guys really are as special as you say you are, you'll be able to tell me the dream and then and only then offer interpretation. Otherwise, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and like, you leave your houses in ruin. 
think the king was in a bad mood. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, um, there, there, there isn't a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. Um, for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of a magician to, uh, or an enchanter or, or Chaldean. Um, the, the thing that the king asks, um, it's, it's, it's too difficult because we can't read your mind and, and, and no one can, can show it to the king except the gods, of course, and, you know, their dwelling isn't with, with men, their dwelling isn't with the flesh, you know, gods are way up there. Well, this may have been the truth, but it certainly wasn't what the king wanted to hear. So he orders all of them destroyed. He sends out a decree to all of these so-called wise men, and they said, well, I want, to, I want them all to be killed. The thing is, Daniel, back to our hero Daniel, he wasn't, he wasn't with them in the, in, the, in the room when all this had gone on. Presumably, he wasn't invited. So Daniel was kind of surprised when the king's guard comes knocking on his door to kill him. <laughs> you ever see that episode of The Simpsons? when I think Homer has like a problem with, with Mr. Burns and like he's scared of him and then like he hears this knock at the door. Who is it? Goons. Who? Hired goons. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> We're told in verse 14, Daniel, Daniel responded with prudence and discretion, with, with wisdom and rationality. We're only in the second chapter, and several times now in the book of Daniel, we've seen Daniel act with wisdom beyond his years. These goons, hired goons, are there to kill him, but, but he doesn't overreact. Instead, he responds with prudence and discretion. He responds with wisdom and rationality. I wonder if like the last time that I was faced with a difficult situation, I, I responded with prudence and and, 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 and discretion, or, or maybe other crap. But anyway, um, remember Daniel wasn't present before all of the wise men, when all the wise men were in there with the king before. So, so Daniel says, all right, hold on a second. I know you're here to kill me, but, you know, give it a minute. Um, why the urgency? You know, what, tell me what's wrong with the king. So the king's guard tells him what happened, and and Daniel requests the opportunity. Just give me an opportunity to give the king my interpretation of the dream. Now, we might be tempted to think that Daniel is, is, is doing what the king had, you know, blamed the other guys for doing, stalling for time. But, but that's, what the king, that's what the king did accuse them of doing. But, but Daniel, he, he's doing something with, um, with that time that is very different than what those other wise men did when they stalled. First what Daniel does is he, he goes to his companions, right? He goes to Hananiah, Mishael, or, and Azariah. You, you probably know them uh, by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny. More on that next week. Daniel goes to them, tells them what happened, and then asks that they would seek mercy. Seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. In short, he prays about it. He prays about it, and then he asks others to pray about it. And they pray together about it. His, intentional, his intention is to continue acting with prudence and discretion. His intention is to still act with wisdom and rationality. But Daniel knows that prayer is not like separate from wisdom and discretion and knowledge and all that. Prayer is an intimate part of what it means to be wise. 
His intention is to continue acting with prudence and discretion, and he knows that the best way of going about this is to begin with prayer. You'll recall, back in verse 11, we heard the wise men tell the king that you know, no one can really interpret dreams like this except for the gods whose dwelling you know, is not with flesh. But, but in Daniel, we see a different sort of prophet. We, in Daniel, we see a prophet of, of the one true and living God who desires to be with his creation, intimately with his creation, and can most definitely be accessed through prayer. And we see Daniel say this and more uh, at the beginning of verse 20. Uh, after b- praying, he goes to bed and, and he receives a vision of his own from God in the night. And, and God gave Daniel an answer. And, and now Daniel knows what he's going to say in response to the king. But first, before Daniel can respond to Nebuchadnezzar the king, first he needs to respond to the king of kings. First he needs to respond to the living God, the king of history. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. This is Daniel's response. Um, uh, Daniel answered, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He, He removes kings and he sets up kings. God does this. He gives wisdom to the wise. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells within him. God is light. To you, O God, my Father, to you, God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you for you have made known. To us, the kings matter. So Daniel's prayer is to the God who orchestrates the flow of history. This is not a distant God, disinterested in the affairs of humanity. No, this God gets gets involved. And the way he gets involved is by entering in the messes. This isn't a God that stands far off and goes, oh, what a, what a joke down there, guys. You guys have really gotten yourselves into it. No, this God enters into the messes and gets involved in the problems of this world. Actually, it's not just that he enters into the messes. It's actually that he uses the messes. Often from our perspective, <clears throat> things look like they've just gone Sorry, from bad to worse. But through prayer and and reading scripture and worship, this is why we do all that stuff. We see that it's all by God's hand. So you ask, well, doesn't that mean that like God orchestrated sin if it was all by his hand? And as Paul would say, absolutely not. But we do find that he is sovereign over all of it. Our God is a God of redemption. Our God, if, if we could only see how he is orchestrating the story of redemption even now, even at this moment. Not just on a cosmic or historical scale, although that's very true, but, but also on a personal scale. Do you, have, do you have garbage back there? Do you have, do you have thoughts? Did you come here this morning carrying like weights of, of things that are on your mind? Like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about this thing. This God wants to enter and use the messes of not just grand cosmic scale, but but personal things. He wants us to confess 
our sins. He wants us to get the garbage out, and then he wants to use it to his glory. He wants to use it to help each other. He wants to use it to make you into the person you were created to be. That's what this God is about. And so Daniel and his friends are enslaved in Babylon. They're one bad boot of the king away from the king destroying their, their homes and their lives. And their home, by the way, as they have these problems in Babylon, they're also thinking about Jerusalem. They're thinking about the promised land that was left in ruins. But evidently, Daniel still knows that God is God. Daniel still believes he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God, God is in it all. Back to the story. Daniel now has the answer. He knows the proper interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He goes back to Arioch, the, the head of the king's guard, and, and he says, uh, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now, did you just notice what Daniel did? D- Daniel, he didn't say please don't destroy me and my friends, I can, I can, I can help here. He said, don't destroy the, the wise men of Babylon. There's that blessed to be a blessing thing again. Daniel didn't just save his own skin. He, he helped save everybody else along the way, even the ones who didn't bother inviting him into the, the king's presence in the first place. There's that blessed to be a blessing thing again. Moving on. Arioch brings Daniel in to see the king, and, and, and he's asked if he can correctly interpret the dream, and you've got to love this. Who, Daniel, he, he says, uh, well, no. No, I can't interpret the dream. And you might see, like, the king, what, what, what's going on here? No wise man, Daniel says. No enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show the king the mystery the one that you have asked. I mean, you can kind of see the king's started, anger starting to rise. What? What, what? what are you talking about? He looks over at Arioch. What, what's going on here? You brought this guy in here to interpret my dream. But, Daniel says, there is a, king, a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream, your vision, that came from him. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, what's going to come in the future. And he who reveals mysteries have made known to you what it is to, what, what is to be. But as for me, though, Daniel says, now, don't, don't think this is coming from me. This, this mystery has been revealed to me by God's grace. Not because of any wisdom and that I have more than any of the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of, of your mind. I'm, I'm just the conduit king. God's God. And you're the king, and that matters. He has something he wants to tell you, king, because he's the king of the kings. He's the living God. So um, after... Uh, before the king has a chance to kind of accuse him of stalling further, Daniel tells the king um, the dream. This is starting in verse 31. Yeah, 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image, a great statue. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its, its middle and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Time waits for no one, and it won't wait for you, king. That's the dream, but now here's the interpretation. Daniel says, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, you are, you're the head of gold. The God of heaven has given you the, this kingdom of Babylon, along with power and, and might and, and glory. You rule over the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven. Sounds a bit like Genesis 1, doesn't it? The thing is, the, the kingdoms of this world are going to rise and fall, and in time, another kingdom will rise after you. And then another kingdom of bronze will rule over the whole earth. The primary point here is to see that, that what, what, what the dream is showing Nebuchadnezzar is that there is a sequence of kingdoms. That God, that even though there is a sequence of kingdoms, that God is sovereign over all of them. See, I think it's reasonable and responsible to look at the words that follow in a, in a relation to the history that we know. But the moment we look at a prophetic text like this and we kind of say, oh, well, that, that's, what it, that's who he's talking about, obviously. We run the risk of putting words in the Bible that aren't there. And that has gotten the church into quite a few pickles over the centuries. That being said, the Persians would follow the Babylonians and then Alexander's the Great, Alexander the Great's armies would dominate the known world. And then, Daniel says... After that, a fourth kingdom is going to rise to power. It's going to shatter what came before, building on the triumphs of Alexander the Great, and it's going to dominate the known world. Many would see this as a reference to Rome, the Roman Empire. And that makes sense. Rome was indeed partly strong and partly weak. It conquered and spread the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, throughout the known world. But, but if you read Roman history, it, it was always a divided kingdom, You know, the Republic of Rome versus the will and might of Caesar, not to mention the question of how to get along with all those conquered people and how to get along with them, how to make them all stay in line. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that this kingdom of the future won't, it's not really going to mix well. It'll seem outrageously overpowered at times, but other times it's going to kind of seem weak. It's going to be like iron mixed with soft clay. So in the days of this kingdom, God is going to do something unlike anything before. You remember that stone that struck the the statue, that struck the image in the dream, and then became this mountain that filled the earth? Well, Daniel says that, that in the days of this fourth kingdom, the God of heaven is going to get involved. He's going to enter the messes, and he's going to set up a new kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. Meaning once it's established, it's established. It's a forever kingdom. It's an an everlasting kingdom. This kingdom shall stand 
forever. It's going to break all these other kingdoms apart, and it's going to bring them all to an end. This kingdom is going to stand forever. And neither Daniel nor Nebuchadnezzar knew just how true this interpretation was. Of course, if you told either of them exactly how God was going to do it, how this stone would smash the empires of this world, they both might be surprised. But, but there it was. There it was, and it's even in the history books. There it was that in the days of the Roman Empire, some 600 years or so after the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, a man named Jesus of Nazareth would begin his ministry with these words. The time is fulfilled. The exile is over, friends. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is God's, is Jesus' announcement of his rule and reign, the announcement of the kingdom of God that is at hand. Jesus would climb up on a mountainside and teach crowds about a new kingdom that was at hand. It was within your grasp and within the grasp of everyone listening. Remember that stone, the one that wasn't cut out by human hands, the one that smashed the statue and that became a mountain that filled the whole earth? All of this is happening with the coming of Jesus. It, didn't just, it just didn't happen the way that they might have expected. I mean, listen how the, uh, the Apostle Paul explains how this stone smashed the empires of the world. This is Colossians chapter 2 in verse 15. The way all this comes together, the way the story progresses beyond exile is by Jesus going to the cross. When that happened, when Jesus was on the cross, Paul says, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He made a public spectacle of them by triumphing, triumphing over them. As N.T. Wright says, that that's the paradox of the cross, friends. God's weakness overcoming human strength. Or like it says in 1 Corinthians, God's folly overcoming human wisdom. I mean, how does God do it? How does God establish this everlasting kingdom? He does it through sacrificial love. By triumphing over the principalities of this world. By triumphing on the cross over the real problem, the real empires of this world. Sin, death, evil. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's how he pulled out the rug from any empire. When when does King Jesus receive his, his crown? As he's mocked right before he goes to the cross. You see, that's what Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great and the great Caesars of Rome, none of them could understand. This, this, sounds, like, this sounds like an 80s power ballad, but it's true. They couldn't understand that the power of love will ultimately triumph over the love of power. That's the hope of the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, victory was won over sin, death, and evil. Though the consummation of that victory was not going to be completed until King Jesus returns. He's inviting his people to be a part of this forever kingdom, to be a part of this everlasting, eternal kingdom. He's calling us to be a part of it today. And for those of us who believe that, that's that's what it means to be the church. I mean, in light of this passage in Daniel, it's so cool to see how often rocks and stones and mountains come up in the New Testament. Jesus gives his his stump speech to the crowds, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus tells his disciples that those who follow his teachings are like wise people who built their homes on the rock. When Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, he says to them, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, you're rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To follow Jesus is to follow the, the one true king. To follow Jesus is to trust in the one true king, the king of history, the living God. Can you say that today? Can, can you say that, that you have put your trust in this one true king, this living God, the king of all history? Or are you still placing your trust in the kingdoms of this world? Are you still placing your ultimate trust in distorted versions, distorted visions of what the kingdom was supposed to look like, of what the kingdom is supposed to look like. Today, God is offering us a fundamentally different vision, one based on sacrificial love, one based on justice, one based on righteousness, all by his, to his glory. One based on sacrificial love that offer, it offers redemption, to empires and kings, but, but maybe more personally to us, it, it, it offers forgiveness. This kingdom, the announcement of God's kingdom, the, the reason why this is good news, the reason why this is a gospel, the reason why Jesus wants us to walk in this direction, it, it, it offers us personally, us as a community, forgiveness, mercy to all men and women, to, to you and me, this is a question that Jesus has for you today. Have you accepted this offer today? Can you say that for me, Jesus is king? For me, he's the king of kings. I trust nothing else, but I trust him. And as for Daniel, again, we, we don't see him in open revolt. He stands his ground with the king. I mean, <laughs> Daniel's just got tremendous chutzpah. But evidently, he does so with prudence and discretion, with gentleness and respect. Nebuchadnezzar hears Daniel's interpretation, which really is ultimately kind of bad news for him, but, but he hears it and immediately praises God. He says, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. He gives Daniel high honors. He makes him ruler over the whole province, uh, province of Babylon, which he in turn, Daniel in turn passes along to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A lot more on that next week. Those wise men that he saved, he is made the chief over all the wise men. And Daniel works with, with the king to kind of delegate out duties. And this chapter ends with Daniel having favor with the king. This honesty, God rewards this honesty of Daniel, this, this man who came to God with prayer at a time of trial, was honest with King. He spoke, he spoke truth to power because he knew the one who was really on the throne. He has favor with the king, and at the end of chapter 2, we see Daniel remaining in the court by the king's side. Spoiler alert, king's going to lose his marbles next week. And he's going to forget everything that he just said, but that's because such is life in an earthly empire. Time, it waits for no one. 
and it won't wait for me. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to the ages. Thank you that even though we have um, seen trials, we've seen tribulations, we've seen empires rise and fall, we, we thank you that you are sovereign over all of it. In that same light, Father, help us to see how you are sovereign over our lives. Help us to see that the darkness that was in our past, you know all about it. The difficulty, the, the garbage, the, the heaviness of our past. You, you want to not be a distant God, not uninvolved, but no, you actually want to enter into this. You want to help us to find true freedom in, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. By the cross, and the cross is triumph over things like sin, death, and evil. Father, you want us to enter into that story to lay the things that, that weigh on us at the foot of the cross and believe in the power of your resurrection, believe in the power of new life, of redemption, of restoration, of reconciliation with our holy God. Father, you desire shalom for us. You desire mercy. You desire peace. You desire serenity. You desire to walk with us in the cool of the day. Father, help us come to you. Help us lay those things that weigh on our hearts. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.